Job has been afflicted. He's lost all his earthly possessions. He's lost his ten children. He's lost his health. He's lost the support of his wife. And now after crying out in a primal scream of pain, he's now lost the support of his friends. We are told in Proverbs 27.6, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In Psalm 141, Psalm of David, we hear, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. But is this what we find as Job's friends seek to set him straight? I would remind you they are his friends. We may lose sight of that as we go along because of what they say. They've traveled long distances, and by mutual agreement, they decided to meet and to go and comfort Job. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground in the garbage heap of the town for seven days and seven nights. They were silent for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They identified with Job in his disgrace and his disease. They demonstrated, as we've seen, the ministry of presence and the sacrament of silence. But his cry in chapter 3, part curse, part lament, changes the dynamic. And why is that? Why do they suddenly sort of turn on Job? Well, they all share a basic proposition, which is found in chapter 4, verse 8. As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you reap what you sow. And Job is a challenge. Job's very existence is a challenge to that basic belief. There are three cycles, as we've seen in this. Eliphaz speaks, Job replies, then Bildad, Job replies, then Zophar, Job replies. But by the time we get to the third go-around of this, Bildad has little to say and Zophar has nothing to say. They sort of run out of gas. In the first cycle, the friends make clear their basic belief. For Job and his friends, and I don't think they disagree necessarily on this, there's a theological uh, principle which views the world as a moral universe, an ordered universe. God is a just God and a good God. Virtue will be rewarded and the way of the wicked will perish. So when Job's friends find him in this state, they conclude that he must have done something terrible and that is why he is suffering so. Job shares their theological principle, but he argues that he has not done anything wrong. Each man has a different basis for his argument. Eliphaz has a spiritual experience. We saw last week a vision, a spirit went over his face in the middle of the night. Bildad relies on tradition and Zophar on rigid dogma. We have in this book a picture of three well-meaning friends who try to help their friend. But because they get it wrong, I'm sorry, they get it wrong because their theology is so deeply flawed. We'll come to this, I think, later on in the sermon, but it's not stated explicitly. But it would seem that Job's friends believe that Job has done something terribly wrong and that he knows he has done something terribly wrong. He's feigning innocence 
when in fact he knows deep down he has done something wrong and that's why God has allowed these things to happen to him. These calamities have come upon him by the hand of God because of that great sin. Job knows that this is not the case. He's not claiming perfection, but he has not cursed God. He has not spoken out against God. He's not violated God's laws. He does not believe he has done anything worthy of these calamities. I think that while Job's friends are fighting to defend their theology, Job is fighting for the reality of God. In his lament, in chapter 3, verse 25, we hear these words, What I have feared has come upon me. What I have dreaded has happened to me. As I've told you, I think this is the key to the whole book. The cause, the cause of Job's pain is not so much his loss, though he must have. Um, we read at the end of chapter 1 that he shaved his head. And... He was overcome with grief. But that is not what causes the pain so much. It's not his bereavement at the loss of his children. It's not even his physical condition or his wife's tempting words. What is it that Job has feared? It is that God is not who he says he is. And in Job's present plight, God is silent. He is saying nothing. While we may want our friends to be present with us and to do so in silence, as these three friends have, Job wants one person not to be silent, and that is God. He wants an explanation from the one who can, in fact, give the explanation. Job is trying desperately to get his faith, what he believes, and where he is, his experience, he wants them to match. And at this point, that's not happening. In this book, Job is on a pilgrimage of faith. But as we will see as we go through this book, he really doesn't make any progress. It is only when God steps in, he intervenes graciously, that Job comes to see, to some degree, the truth. We saw last week Eliphaz, and we listened to his speech. We studied it. Um, in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, consider now... Who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the, right, the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow, plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Verse number 8 is, in fact, the premise of his argument, cause and effect, sowing and reaping. But verse number 7 shows the fallacy of his argument, because many of God's upright people have died for the faith. Many innocent have died. Now, I understand Theologically, that no one is truly innocent that is untainted by original sin. But that's not what Eliphaz has in mind. Among his mistakes, his errors, Eliphaz replaces theology with logic. He turned faith, a living faith, into cold logic. He hears what Job has to say as a challenge to his religious belief system in which Eliphaz has real, a real investment, and Job's cry challenges Eliphaz's belief system. And then, I think almost as though he's aware that cold logic won't get him to where he wants to go, he claims to have a supernatural experience. 
just on a personal note, I don't think he really had this. I think this is something he made up to strengthen his argument. For all the good things that Eliphaz has to say, and he does have some good things to say, he seemingly has no compassion for his friend Job. At the end of his speech, we hear a proposition that is satanic because it's exactly what the accuser said to God. Job fears you because of all the good things you give him. That's why he follows you. That's why he worships you. And Eliphaz says, listen, come back to God. Confess this horrible thing that we know you've done, but we don't know what it is. And then God will reward you and you'll have all these wonderful things again. Well, now in chapter 6 and 7, which we'll be looking at today, Job responds to his friends. And in a pattern we will find throughout this book, Job first addresses his friends, and then he addresses God. The God who is silent and seemingly nowhere to be found. You see, Job does not know that God is working out some divine purpose that his situation, his circumstances are tied to God's secret purposes. Purposes which are so secret that all these centuries, all these millennia later, even though we have the book of Job and it's been studied upstairs in the library, I have an eight-volume set of sermons that one pastor preached on the book of Job over a 40-year period of time. We still don't know why God allowed this to happen. We do not know God's secret purposes in this. What is at work here is beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. When we get to the end of the book of Job, we will find that when it's all said and done, Job doesn't know any more about his situation than he did at the beginning. But what he comes to see is that God is God. At this point where Job is, it all seems so unfair. As one of the kids in the neighborhood used to say, for no reason. For no reason these things have come upon him. So Job answers his friends, and Eliphaz in particular. And by the way, Job is angry. Look if you would, chapter 6, verse 1. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. As he did in chapter 3, Job begins with an outburst of emotion. And consider his circumstances. No wonder he's emotional. I think he's trying to explain what happened in chapter 3. That if you took his misery, and if you have the scales, like the scales of justice that we see in front of courthouses, if you put all his misery in one, it would be heavier than all the sands of the sea. In the midst of pain, we need to realize that we don't always think rationally. Job has spoken impetuously, but he's lost so much. Forget the possessions, he's lost his ten children. He has suffered, but what has been the source of his suffering? Verse number four, the arrows of the Almighty. 
The divine archer is not only accurate, but he has dipped his arrows in poison. And the divine general has marshaled his forces. He's organized his forces against Job. Someone that Job thought he knew, God Almighty, has come against him. Someone that Job thought he could trust has been silent. Verse 5, when things went well, there was no emotional outburst. You know, when a wild donkey has grass, it doesn't bray. When an ox has his fodder, he does not bellow. So when things were going well for Job, he did sacrifice for his children. He was blameless. But now that this has come, then you have this emotional outburst. And what else would they expect? They expect that he would be silent through all of this. The advice of his friends has, the advice has no flavor. It's like the white of an egg, food eaten without salt. And he rejects it all in verse number seven. Verse number eight. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off, Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of a stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? In verses 8, 9, and 10, Job wants to die. Um, By the way, mentioned this before, but throughout the book, there is never a hint that Job should kill himself. Suicide is not an option that Job considers. It's not even brought up. What he wants is for God to kill him. And and why, why would he want God to kill him? Well, our first thought is because he's in so much pain. All the pain that he has endured. But there are two other things. If God were to end his life, it would, in fact, be an answer to Job's prayers. So God's still there. He's silent, but he's there. And if, if he killed Job, if he ended his life, then Job would say, God has answered my prayers. God is there. He heard my prayer and he answered it. But the third reason why Job wants God to kill him is that if God were to end his life now, Job would die not having denied God. He does not want to deny God Almighty. Verse number 10, then I would have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. Job does not want to be pushed beyond the limits of what he can take. Because, in fact, if things continue, he might reach a point where he would deny the words of the Holy One. He's just tired. In verses 11, 12, and 13, He is so weak and so tired. He's exhausted. But he still has some energy because he continues to address his friends. Verse 14. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow. Swollen with melting snow. 
but that ceased to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanished from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their routes. They go, into, they go up into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tima look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrived there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give me something on my behalf? Pay a ransom for me from your wealth? Deliver me from the hand of the enemy? Ransom me from the clutches of the ruthless? Let's begin with verse number 14. And I, I must tell you, I don't think that verse 14 is well put in the NIV. It almost seems to say that Job is saying to his friends, listen, even if I turn against God, you should still support me. And that's not what he is saying. What he is saying is, when you abandon me, you are in fact abandoning God. The two great commandments, we are to love the Lord our God, we are to love our neighbors ourselves. In loving our neighbor, we love someone whom we can see. And that is evidence of the reality that we love God whom we have not seen. And here is Job whom they can see, they've been with him for these seven days and more. And they are turning their back on him and Job is saying, basically, you turn your back on me, you're turning your back on the God that I worship. His friends are useless. They are like disappearing water sources in the desert where one hopes to find water, only to be disappointed. He describes caravans that go from Tima, the northwest, to Sheba in the southwest, and they're looking for water. And they don't find water, so they turn aside, saying, maybe up in the mountains, you know, the snow will have thawed and we'll find water. They don't find water, and in fact, they perish. They die. For seven days and seven nights, Job has been silent, perhaps hoping that his friends might have some words of comfort and consolation, some reasonable explanation for his circumstances. But what did they say to him? Job, it's your fault. You did something terrible. That's why this has happened to you. And why did they, why did they come to this conclusion? Verse number 21, I think, is really important. Their fear has dissolved their loyalty. They are afraid. What are they afraid of? Well, I think a number of things. One is that Job isn't who they thought he was. That they actually thought this, that this was sort of a... a a first among equals, uh, that this was someone they looked up to, perhaps a mentor, someone that they thought was a good person, and, and now he's in, in the garbage heap, covered with sores. Um, yeah, I think that their whole view is like, boy, I think maybe we got it all wrong. But they also seem to be worried that he might become a burden to them. So we asked him, you know, have I ever asked for money? You know, he's lost everything. He's, he's going to need some financial support. Is that what they're afraid of? Job continues in verse 24. Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat the words of a despairing man as win? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. 
But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? There's a dramatic shift here. And I think one way to take this is that that Job is being really, really sarcastic. Um, It's like, come on, you guys know everything. Come on, teach me, correct me. I'm not sure. But as I said earlier, Job's friends seem to think he has committed some great sin. And if he has, Job apparently can't see it. That's, that's not unusual. Oftentimes we are the last people, I think, to know what our faults are. It oftentimes takes a friend, and that's why faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let, let a righteous man strike me. It's good. Somebody outside of me can see the things that I'm doing wrong. They need to point it out to him. Instead, we find logical, with cold logic, calculating men. They would cast lots for his children, who are gone. But in the ancient world, if somebody went bankrupt or whatever, their children oftentimes would be sold into slavery. And they would even sell their friend. They would barter his life away. Because they're just thinking about the bottom line. I find it interesting. He wants them to look him in the face. He wants them to look at him, which seems to imply that they're not, that they're sort of got their back to him or whatever. And it, it must be painful to look at him without question. But Job's like, you know, look, look at me. Look at me. And instead, they're all pontificating about, oh, Job, you're a terrible person, and that's why these things have happened to you. Instead of looking at him, they are saying some harsh things. And trust me, there are more harsh things to come. A German theologian in the second half of the 20th century was asked, what was the greatest defect among American Christians? Being on the continent, you know, Europe. uh, Again, oftentimes we are the last people to see our faults, so have an outsider. His answer was they have an inadequate view of suffering. And there may be something to that, as someone in our congregation reminds me from time to time, that's just a first world problem. And until recently, we've been fairly sheltered. We have remedies for our pain. Think of all the possible remedies for whatever aches and pains you might have. We want to avoid suffering. I think what this theologian is saying is we lack a context within which to view pain. We do not see or want to see pain as part of what it means to be a human being. So when we do suffer, we tend to see it as something strange. Like, what is this? Not recognizing that it is, in fact, part of the human condition. Rather than saying, I'm a human being, I'm finite, I live in a fallen world, and suffering is part of my life, um, we see suffering as something quite strange something that does not belong here, something's wrong with this picture. And then we tend to blame others and ultimately God for our suffering. If you were to ask me what is our greatest flaw as Americans and as American Christians, I think my answer would be is that we do not listen. 
And in that, I think we are like Job's friends. They haven't listened to him. All they hear is this anguish, this primal scream. They haven't listened. They heard him, but they didn't listen. They think he has turned away from God. They may even think that he has cursed God. No, he has cried out in pain. And since they're not listening and they're not looking at him, they give him some very bad advice. It could even be, this is just supposition, that during the seven days and seven nights, they're already preparing in their heads the arguments that they're going to make to Job. James tells us that we are to be quick to listen. But oftentimes, I think when we are listening, we're not really listening. We're preparing our rebuttal. We're preparing an answer instead of being quiet and listening and taking in what someone says. We need to listen. Job's friends did not listen, and therefore they give him some very bad advice. Then we come to chapter 7. And it's natural to think, oh, this is, he's still talking to Eliphaz. But if you look carefully, you will see, particularly from verse 8 on, that Job is speaking to and quarreling with God. In fact, that is the case throughout the book. Yes, he is answering specific criticisms or corrections, but what he says is intended for God's ears. As we go through the book of Job, and perhaps you will read it on your own, you need to be ready. You need to be ready that at any moment, Job may shift from the language of debate against his friends to the language of prayer, that is, conversation with God. That in one in one verse, he may be speaking to his friends, a conversation with his friends, and in the next, he is speaking to God in conversation. The beginning of chapter 7, he sets his personal suffering in the context of what it means to be human. I think a man who has had a relatively easy life at this point comes to see that now he has joined the human race. Look, if you would, at chapter 7, verse 1. Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man? Like a slave longing for the evening shadows, man waiting eagerly for his wages. So I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss till dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Well, we as the reader knows that we know that Job's suffering is different. It is a unique test of his faithfulness to God. Job knows that he is not alone. It is, in fact, the experience of humanity, the experience of suffering. Human ex existence, as Thomas Hobbes wrote in Leviathan, is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And this being the case, at this point, what Job is talking about with regard to God isn't simply about his situation, but the whole human race. It's a global proposition. Why are lives so difficult? Any answer that God may give to Job about why he is suffering will be inadequate to explain why other people suffer as well. 
In the remaining verses of this chapter, it becomes clear that Job is appealing to a higher court. Whether or not his friends are listening, they're not even looking at him, but whether or not they're listening, he now addresses his words to God. As one writer put it, in a prayer of shocking intimacy. God is being held accountable. There is a mutual relationship he has with Job. And even though Job, as a finite, fragile human being, is nothing compared to the infinite personal God, um, God is the one on whom the responsibility for this relationship rests. Job argues that in this unequal relationship, infinite with finite, God must remember that Job cannot sustain this relationship. That, by the way, is why Job wants God to kill him, because he may, in fact, lose heart completely and deny God. Job is not able to maintain his side of this ridiculously unequal, but somehow mutual relationship. And as we hear at the end of the chapter, one of these days, God will come looking for Job, and there won't be anything left of Job to see. Verse number seven. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will, no long, will see me no longer. That's God eye, God's eye. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Now Job addresses God, and he tells God how things stand between him. We're in this relationship, but you know what? Something's not right here. And as we read these verses, ask yourself, Is this the language of prayer? Verse 11. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. One might ask, is this the proper language of prayer, the proper attitude or tone of prayer? Where is the adoration and the thanksgiving? Where is the trust, the supplication, the contrition. In short, the things we we normally associate with prayer, we do not find in these verses. Instead, we, we hear anger and we hear challenge. The Bible records a number of instances 
when people risk telling God what they think. I'm on this side of this relationship. And from this side of the relationship, it seems like you have not lived up to your end. Let me just read you several. Moses in Numbers 11. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promise on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. We hear it from Jeremiah. And most recently, we heard it from Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. You're not listening, God, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. We hear it through various people, and we hear it in the book of Psalms as well. Psalm 88, if you're taking notes, is perhaps the most Job-like psalm of the 150 psalms. But it is probably Psalm 22 that we most closely associate with this, because these are the words Jesus repeated on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The purpose or the aims of these prayers what some might call reckless prayers, is not to break off the relationship from God, from the human side, sort of a declaration of independence. Listen, if you're not going to live up to your end of the bargain, then just kill me, get this over with. I've had it with you. No, by holding God accountable for his side of what appears to be a broken relationship, such prayers express what one writer has called a kind of upside-down trust. That is, We trust that God can handle anything and everything we have to say. We trust that God alone can answer the cries of our heart if any answer is possible at all. I've told you before that um, many years ago, I think the first year that I was here in Los Angeles, uh, I reached a a dark part, a place in my life, and um, frankly, I was rather angry with God. And I spoke to an older pastor who sort of took me under his wing, and I, and I told him that. He said, that's okay, Damon, God can handle it. He can handle your anger. And in crying out to God, as Moses did, as Habakkuk did, as Job does here in chapter 7, we have a kind of upside-down trust, knowing that, we, that God can answer whatever we throw at him. He can handle anything that we throw at him. And this is the difference between the primal scream of faith, of authentic faith, and that of a self-centered atheism in which, one, in which one thinks he or she has the answers. In such an encounter, Job knows he's overmatched. I mean, really? He's going to, he's going to wrestle with God? 
But he wonders aloud, why does God even care? Why does he even care? Why does he care about the quality of human life, as fragile and transient as it obviously is? What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? This may remind you of the words in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Why do you even care? Chapter 7 ends with these powerful words, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. It's almost as a child screaming at his or her parents, I hate you. But in reality, what they're saying is, I hurt. I don't understand what's going on. I can't take it. I need you. I want you. Like a wounded child, Job cries out against a relationship with God that is so broken that Job can't take it anymore. And yet it is so intense that he cannot abandon it. In this chapter and in this book, we have a man who truly believed in God. And yet he wondered what was going on. Today we find ourselves, and we have for four months now, in a totally unexpected situation, a pandemic. We could not have imagined this happening a year ago, six months ago. And to some extent, we may struggle, we still struggle to get our minds around it. I mean, this isn't supposed to happen in the 21st century, is it? I mean, Middle Ages, you know, the Black Death, all those, yeah, that in the past. It seems almost incomprehensible that this is happening. But as God's people, we need to recognize the brokenness of the world, its need for redemption. God has a plan for this. He may never tell us what it is, by the way. Never told Job. He hasn't told us what his plan was for Job. But God is with us. In talking about the problem of evil, Oz Guinness suggests that there are really three issues that are being confronted. How can we believe that evil is really evil if we believe in God? How can we believe that God is all good? And how can we believe that God is all powerful? I don't think that these are questions for Job. These are not the issues for Job. For Job it is, why is God silent? Why is God silent? For us, however, in the midst of this plague, we may be asking if God is all powerful, why has he allowed this to happen? If God is all good, why is this happening? Why are people dying? But we may also be asking, like Job, why is God silent? Our call as God's people is to an upside-down trust. That is, to trust that God can handle anything and everything we have to say in our prayers. And trust that God alone can answer the cries of our heart, if any answer is possible at all.
Job does not lose his trust in God. Just doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't turn his back on God. He just wants to know what's going on. And spoiler alert, at the end of the story, Job still doesn't know what's going on. But then it doesn't matter because he realizes that God is God and he isn't. God knows precisely what he's doing, though we may wonder from time to time. Let's pray together. Our Father, the God of Job, Lord God Almighty, Job stands as a challenge to his friends, but in a real way, he stands as a challenge to us. Because we imagine that if we do what you've called us to do, then then things should go relatively well. We are afraid, as his friends were, that even if we do as you've called us to do, terrible things might happen to us. Deep down, we want to be in control. We want a relatively pain-free life. A life free of real difficulties. But like Job, we are called to trust you in this unequal relationship. Who could imagine that the infinite God would want to be in relationship with finite, broken creatures. And yet we imagine that we know what's best. We imagine that we know what you should do. Help us to remember that we can trust you, that we can come to you with hard questions. that in some way we can rail against you. We can challenge you. We can even be angry with you. We are but children. And like a child may cry out in anger against his or her parents, we may cry out against you, and yet you still hold us in your hands. You still love us. You have a purpose in our lives, purpose that we may not know, we may never know, but by your grace we know you. This book is a hard book. It brings up things we would rather not think about, but it is your word. I pray that as we study it, your spirit would give us understanding. And may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. I thank you for this Sunday, a day of worship, that we can meet together, either here in person or online. But you are with each one of us. 
And we ask that your spirit and your grace would be with us in the coming week. We pray in a particular way for Titus, that you would touch him and raise him up. Pray for Stacy and the kids. You would keep them from any illness. For Lonnie as she goes to the specialist this week. For each one of us, as we walk through this broken world, may we know that you are right there with us. Though sometimes it may not seem that way. Sometimes you are are silent, but you're always there. Thank you for loving us and for proving that love by sending your Son, who even now intercedes for us. So we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.